0: At this point, we'd like to go ahead and dismiss our kids. Usually that's our kindergartners through our 8th graders. Uh, this week, if you're up, or kindergarten through 3rd graders, what that usually is, I may have misspoken They're Up through 8th grade, if you'd like to be dismissed, uh, John and Emma Malagan will be there, and they're able to teach our, our middle school students uh, if, uh, if you'd like them to be there. As they're going, a reminder, uh, if you're newer with us, uh, we've been preaching through the book of Genesis for over a year now, uh, and we, we practice what's called expository preaching, where the point of the passage is the main point of the sermon. So what we're seeking to do. And one of the good parts about expository preaching is that God sets the agenda for what we're going to talk about, and you don't end up, hopefully, with pastors getting on hobby horses and talking about whatever they feel like talking about on a given week, Uh, One of the other good parts is that it forces you to preach on passages that you might otherwise skip, and today is one such day. Genesis 34 is one of the darkest chapters in the entire Bible, if not the darkest chapter. As Pastor Steve referenced in his prayer and myself earlier in announcements, it contains mature content, including sexual assault and premeditated mass murder. So I want you to know this morning, if you're here as a victim of sexual assault or abuse of any kind, I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you for being here. Understand that this passage might take you back to trauma. Understand that it might serve as a painful trigger for you. So I hope that you're able to stay But I want you to know that if you need to step out at any point, that is okay. We're glad that you're here, and we'll seek to be as sensitive as we can. I'm going to read the passage in a moment, but there's one other thing that we need to say before we get to that. It's important that we recognize this passage is what we call a narrative. It describes things that happened. That means it is not saying, catch this, it is not saying this is what God wanted to happen. In fact, we know for a fact that God hates that this happened. He's holy, and he's good, and he's never pleased with sin and how it impacts humanity. We have to recognize that at the outset. So if you have your copy of the scriptures with you, I'd invite you to open to Genesis chapter 34. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 28. <clears throat> if you don't have a copy of God's word, uh, I hope you'll take that Pew Bible... With you and take it home. It's our gift to you. We're glad to give it to you. I hope that you'll uh, not only take it, but also read it through the week as well. And I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Reading from Genesis chapter 34, starting in verse 1. This is the reading of God's Word. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they'd heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, "'The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter,' Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, We cannot do this thing, to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, And we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land the Canaanites and the Parasites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. And following the reading of God's word and before the preaching of his word, would you join me again in prayer, asking that God would open our eyes and ears to hear and to see what's here, but also to hear and see what's in our own hearts and how we might be more like these people than we would like to think? And let us ask God for a tender heart, a humble heart, to receive his word and to be changed by his spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for your word yet grieved by the darkness of sin and the depravity of the human heart. So as we approach this dark passage, this dark chapter, we ask, oh God, that you would give us eyes to see the truth in your word and the darkness of our heart. We ask you would give us ears to hear the truth of your word And we ask you would give us humble hearts to receive this message. To not think of others, but to listen for ourselves. And we ask that, Holy Spirit, you would convict our hearts and change us into the image of your Son. Lord, I I pray specifically for those who are here this morning as the victims of abuse of any kind. I pray that you would be their protector and their defender, their refuge and their strength. You would bring comfort and safety and protection to their lives. And God, I pray for the abusers in this room, perhaps, or watching online. God, I pray that by your spirit, you would bring them to repent of their wickedness. They would turn to you. And they would lead lives of honor and nobility and dignity. Lord, we're asking for big things this morning. We trust that you are good and you are holy and that you intervene in our lives. And we ask you to do that This morning, even as we open this text, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We read a passage like this one, and we're supposed to gasp. We read it, we keep waiting for it to get better, and it doesn't. It goes without saying, this is incredibly complex material to navigate. So how would we try to do that in the next 40 minutes? What would that even begin to look like? Here's what we're going to plan to do. I want to zoom way out at the beginning and see a couple of things that Genesis 34 tells us about God's word. And then I want to zoom in just a little bit and see how Genesis 34 impacts the broader story of Genesis and how the, you know, why is it placed right here in Genesis? Maybe take 10 minutes or so to do all of that. And then I want to zoom in specifically to Genesis 34 and see four truths from God's word in this passage that can be immediately applied to our lives. Right? So that's sort of our plan right there. Starting at the most zoomed out, what does Genesis 34 tell us about God's word? What does it say? First, it tells us this God's word is relevant today. It tells us God's word is relevant today. You could think perhaps that this is an old book, a distant book, an ancient book, but when you open this up, you read of sexual assault and rampant greed, mass murder, and male passivity. And we recognize that if we were to change the names of the people and the names of the towns, it would read much like the news today. And so while this book might feel old and distant, and you wonder if it still has application to us today, we must recognize at the outset that this book is describing a core condition of the human heart that exists in all people, in all cultures, at all periods of history. It's relevant for us today. It speaks to the same heart condition that we all have. Second thing Genesis 34 tells us about God's Word, it shows us God's heart for the weak, You see, one of the great injustices of abuse is that abusers and those who are complicit in abuse, they hide it and they cover it up. Notice, God doesn't do that. So I'm going to put this out in the open. I'm going to talk about this. Because where we shine the light of God's word, the darkness flees. And so by including this chapter in the Bible, we have good evidence that we can trust God's heart for the weak. It's exactly who he says he is. It's important we recognize these things at the outset and we start to zoom in just a little bit more and say, now, why is this chapter in Genesis placed precisely where it is? How does it contribute to the larger story? If I can pick up a couple of themes that we've been tracking through Genesis thus far, one of them is about God's people trying to possess the land dwell in the land and be blessed in the land at the end of chapter 33 it seems as if perhaps the story is coming to its conclusion like if you didn't know the rest of the whole bible was coming you might finish chapter 33 and think that we were almost to paradise the brothers who hate each other have reconciled they're moving into the promised land jacob has bought land in the promised land in the last verse of chapter 33 he erects an altar and worships the lord It seems like there's a happy ending of sorts. But besides trying to dwell in the land, there's another theme that's also prominent all throughout Genesis. It's that Satan is trying to destroy this offspring of the woman. The seed that would bring about the Messiah, Satan wants desperately to destroy. And in this chapter, he employs a new tactic where men would abdicate their responsibility at every turn, where every kind of foolish behavior they would employ. As if to say there can be no paradise, there can be, be no dwelling in the land without some kind of an outside savior coming in because your hearts are so dark. That's why this chapter is here. All throughout the scriptures, we read that men are called to lead and to protect. And in Genesis 34, we see them doing the exact opposite of that. And over and over and over, the women suffer because the men fail to do what God has called them to do. Throughout the Bible, the term fool is employed by God. And so I'm gonna use that term throughout this sermon as well. And I want you to, to understand that if I apply the term fool to your sin, it might be upsetting to you, might bother you, you might even be a little bit angry. I just want you to understand the outset, if me applying that term to you makes you angry, then recognize your, your issue is with God. And the Holy Spirit may be speaking to you more than I'm speaking to you. So take up your business with him and not with me. There's one more final zoomed out comment I want to make before we get into the, the specifics of Genesis 34. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 would write about events that take place in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. He would say that uh, 1 Corinthians 10 around verse 11 that these are written down, here's what took place back then. And all of these events are written down Paul would say for our instruction because there's something we should learn from it. I think it's easy that we read these Old Testament texts and think that's somebody else in some other place doing some crazy thing. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 would say, no, 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 look out. There's something to instruct you here in this passage as well. And right as he's building that argument, he comes to chapter chapter 10, verse 12. I think we have it on the screen, and it says this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It's a warning we all must hear when we come to a dark passage like this that we take heed lest we think that we stand and we're not like those people. It's the doctrine of total depravity that our heart is incredibly dark. Darker than even we know. And while these guys in the Old Testament look really bad, the reality is we're a lot more like them than any of us want to admit. This passage is for your instruction. So don't lose sight of that as we come to it. Now, as we start to dig into Genesis 34, let me give you the, the big idea of Genesis 34 in a, in a simple sentence, and then, then we'll kind of explain it and break it down from there. Here's the main idea of Genesis 34 Pursuing God's gifts in Satan's ways always brings intense pain. Pursuing God's gifts in Satan's ways, always brings intense pain. We're going to see this in a variety of ways. So we'll have four points this morning, working through different people who pursued God's gifts in Satan's wicked ways and tracking the intense pain that it brought when they did that. Let's begin first with Shechem, the son. Point one, Shechem pursued God's gift of sexual intimacy in Satan's wicked way. Shechem pursued God's gift, sexual intimacy, in Satan's wicked way. I hope your copy of the scriptures is still open. Let's go back and and reread verses 1 through 4 where we see this. Starting in verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hittite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, Get me this girl for my wife. If we track some chronology throughout the book of of Genesis and, and look at when different people lived in different times, we recognize that Dinah is likely in her late teens here. Her family has moved to this new town, to Shechem, and she's intrigued by this new place and the people there, and she goes out to see what they're like. And we're almost immediately left asking, why is she all alone? Where is her dad in the picture? We'll come back to this later, but we must note it at the outset. And while she's out, she meets this young man named Shechem. What happens is clearly a rape passage says, he seized her, he lay with her, he humiliated her. Nowhere is there any mention of Dinah's consent. In fact, she never speaks in chapter 34. She's literally given no voice. It's utterly evil. No one in the entire chapter even mentions God's name. The very last verse of chapter 33, someone mentions his name. And the very first verse of chapter 35 mentions his name. But no one speaks of God, even once in chapter 34. There's no intention to obey God or to honor him. It is a sick and a perverse twisting of God's good gift of sexual intimacy. We must recognize that sex is a good gift. It's beautiful as God has designed it. Hebrews 13, verse 4 speaks to this. It says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. This good gift is twisted, both in Genesis 34 and all throughout human history. I want you to notice something in the passage in verse 3. I want you to see the ordering of these verbs. After assaulting Dinah, we read a totally backwards approach from Shechem. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, His soul was drawn to Dinah, that's the first verb, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman, second, and third, spoke tenderly to her. And we must not miss this. It's important for men and for women, for boys and for girls, for married people and for single people, for everyone. Shechem sees that she's beautiful, but he doesn't even know her. He takes her forcibly and then decides, I love her. Now I will speak tenderly to her. This is not the way of godliness. It's not the way of honor. It's not the way of nobility. Godly men, noblemen, they start by speaking tenderly. They show a woman they love her with their actions. And as their souls are drawn together, they make a commitment with vows and as a reflection after that, their bodies come together. You see, godly men work in exactly the opposite direction of Shechem. They speak with words, act with love, commit with vows, and then become one flesh. Real men don't reverse this process. Fools reverse the process. And if we, if we just speak for a moment to premarital sex, not yet seeing sexual abuse or sexual assault, we should take note. Ladies, this is instructive in your dating life. If he wants sexual intimacy now, even if it's consensual, break up with him. When you're dating, he's on his best behavior. And he's telling you, if you're valued in and of yourself as an image bearer of God, or if he just sees you as an object of sexual pleasure for his own taking. If he's abusive or even violent, ladies, run, get away, flee. Is there forgiveness for past mistakes? You bet. There always is. But right here, we're seeing what happened in that passage, and we're looking ahead, and I'm saying, Please listen to me. I want to save you from a world of heartache and heartbreak. Leave. Ladies, you have to understand that you are not reduced to your body. You are not a sexual object for a man's pleasure. You bear the image of God. And men, you have to understand this. You are not your passions. They don't define you. They can be restrained, and they must be restrained. And the devastating reality in our world is that these truths are so perverted by sin that they're almost lost on every single page of the the paper, per se, that takes us around our world today. Stats say that one in four women are victims of domestic abuse. Think about that, one in four. And one in seven men are victims of domestic abuse. So if you're here and you've been victimized by abuse or assault, I am so, so sorry. But you know it's not your fault. You are loved and you are valued here. But you understand. We know that abuse is vicious, and it speaks awful lies to your soul. It denies core truths of who you are. You are made in the image of God. You are valuable. You are loved. Psalm 147 says that God heals the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds. Psalm 82 says that God gives justice to the weak and to the fatherless, It says he maintains the rights of the afflicted. Where an abuser would seek to strip your rights, God says, no, I maintain the rights of the afflicted. And while Genesis 34 doesn't tell us the full story of justice coming, the beauty of the Christian story on the whole is that we know that one day Jesus will come back and bring true and full and complete and righteous justice. We have to understand in this passage, we see the cycle of abuse being demonstrated. There's first abuse, and then it comes back with speaking tenderly. So understand, ladies, he might say that he's sorry. He might say that it won't happen again. He might promise to, to work it out and to be better. He might promise to join a Bible study. He might promise to go to church next Sunday. But ladies, that is a dangerous man. And the wisest thing for you to do may be to separate from him. It might be wise for you to block his number. It might be wise for you to get a restraining order. But please, please seek help. I know it is terrifying to think about speaking up. You don't know what he's going to do next. But please do speak up. You are not a burden. We'll do everything we can to help, I promise. I was just on the phone this week with an abuse organization in Hendricks County that seeks to help those who are in abusive situations to get out and get to a safer place. We work with professionals and counseling and other like-minded ministries that can provide the support and the resources that are needed. Even as we think about our programs here at the church, we work with experts to implement robust background check systems for anybody working with minors. We're actively seeking best practices for the safety and the protection of kids here at Parkside. If I can speak for a minute to the abusers that are here in the room, whether sexual or otherwise, you must repent. You might fool everybody at church. You haven't fooled Jesus. He sees you. He sees your foolish behavior, and he'll judge you if you don't repent. You might look impressive to people. Shechem was called the prince of the land. He got an entire city of adult males to circumcise themselves pre persuasive guy. But you're using your gifts to silence women, to abuse them, perhaps even to assault them. Repent. First Peter 3, 7, that God, God says that you are to honor the woman as the weaker vessel so that your prayers may not be hindered. You want your prayers to be hindered? Honor God's daughters. Fact of the matter is, whatever level of power or strength or persuasion you have, you're going to either use it to honor women or not to. You're going to use it in the way of Jesus or the way of Satan. You're going to use those gifts on the path to life or the path to death. Men, is this you? Can that lady in your life, can she go to events without you? Is she allowed to talk to other men without you being angry? Do you track her location and demand constant updates? Do you give her the silent treatment? Do you yell at her? Do you throw things in anger? I pray this morning that in the preaching of God's word, you will be convicted of your sin, you'll be broken, and you will throw yourself on the grace of God. I pray that you will repent. And I pray that you'll show you're serious about your repentance by confessing your sin to a pastor or to another man of God. Because you've been keeping your sin in private and hiding it for a long time. I pray that you'll bring it out into the open. I know there's some of you here in the room. You're, you're hearing this. We read it. You're wondering how things could ever get this bad. You wouldn't quite say it this way, but you do think you're incapable of some of these kinds of deeds. And let me just remind you what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10. That these things are written down as what took place, but they are for your instruction, so take heed, lest in your arrogance you think you stand and you fall. Friend, there is no sin, there is no sin that any of us are incapable of committing. And I understand it doesn't happen right away. It happens through a slow path of small, compromising decisions along the way, and you put yourself on the path to Shechem. Look, I understand this passage is talking about sexual assault, but it doesn't start there. you got to understand that. It starts with a wandering eye at work. It starts with a wandering eye at youth soccer games or perhaps around the church. You put yourself on the path to Shechem. It starts with permitting a little bit of porn in your life after a stressful week at work to take the edge off. You put yourself on the path to Shechem. And understand that if you do watch porn, you are actively funding abuse. Because right now, there are more humans in slavery in our world than there has ever been in the history of the world. And it's driven and fueled by the porn industry. That's someone's little girl on that screen someone's little boy, image bearers of God. Friends, Jesus didn't die so that you could manage your sin and keep it in the corner of the room where you think it's safe and under control. Where it doesn't destroy you, but it's just kind of there. No, Jesus died so that you would put your sin to death. So make war on sin in your life today. Understand, it's heavy stuff here. You might be feeling a heavy wave of guilt and of shame from the Holy Spirit bringing your sin to mind. I want you to understand, you need to feel the weight of that. But you also need to know that in the repentance and forgiveness of sins can be found in Jesus. Because Paul, I referenced a minute ago, reading from 1 Corinthians 10. He wrote to a city in Corinth that was known for its sexual perversion. And I want you to hear what he says to the church starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. I believe it's on the screen. You should read this and find hope that there is true forgiveness and you can change and you can be different. Here's what it says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, Nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Don't miss that. Because that was some of you. That used to be you. It's not you anymore. You can change, you have to turn to Jesus. We keep going. Next slide, please. But you were washed, you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Friends, there is hope in Jesus. Where we could not change ourselves, he can and will change you. There's real hope. But you must not overlook this fact along the way. The pain and devastation of abuse, of twisting God's good gift, is incalculable. So repent this morning of seeking God's good gift in Satan's wicked way. That's our first point, and it will be the longest. But I want to move to a couple of other ways we see this happening in our passage. Our next major character is Hamor. Hamor pursues God's gift of wealth in Satan's wicked way. Hamor pursues God's gift of wealth in Satan's wicked way. Hamor should have been grieved by his son's wickedness, but instead he tries to leverage it to gain wealth. So Shechem asks his dad, Hamor, to get Dinah as his wife. They enter into negotiation with Dinah's brothers The brothers say, hey, you guys all have to be circumcised. And they say, okay, that sounds good. They go back and tell the men of the city, here's our plan. And when they talk to the men of the city, Hamor's underlying motive, greed, comes out. So we pick up in verse 20 of this passage. Here's what we read. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Here's the part where the greed comes out, catch this. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. You see, Hamor goes to them and says, hey, guys, this is going to hurt. But in the long run, we're going to get super rich on it. Play the long game. Basically, that's what he tells them, right? And we recognize at the outset that wealth itself can be a good gift. It can be sought in honorable ways, and it can be used for the glory of God. But the pursuit of wealth has blinded Hamor. He refuses to discipline his son. Imagine Dinah standing by and watching these guys negotiate for how they're going to get rich at her expense and the pain that's multiplied in her life. Hamor fails to heed the words of Proverbs twenty-two fifteen. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. If you want to look up more about what God's word says about disciplining children and the importance of it, you might look up Proverbs 13, 24 this afternoon. You might look up Proverbs 23, verses 13 through 15. You might look up Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4. Or you might even turn over to Hebrews chapter 12, starting in about verse 7, and read that even God disciplines his sons out of love for them. He disciplines his daughters out of love for them. So the message is quite simple at this particular point. Parents, if you love your kids, you will discipline them in godly ways. There is a wide array of methods that can be used, but discipline itself is not optional. If you abuse them and you beat them, that's just your selfishness and your anger being carried out against them. And if you only affirm them and never discipline them, that's just your selfishness and your people-pleasing being applied to them. So avoid both ditches. And if you're wondering what this looks like, like in more practical terms perhaps, Let me just say, I know tons of godly parents and grandparents in this congregation, and this is not their first rodeo, and they've had to figure this out, and I would love you to to connect you with them, understanding that different kids at different ages with different personalities and different challenges they're facing require us to employ different methods and find ways to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If you got questions about this, please come and talk to me. I'd love to introduce you to some folks that I've learned a ton from and let them impart some wisdom to you as well. But Hamor is blinded by his greed. Not only does he fail to discipline his son, he also goes on the offensive and he uses his son's sin as an opportunity to advance his own greedy pursuits. It's absolutely sickening. Friends, there's a reason that Jesus spoke more on money than he did heaven and hell combined. Because we see it clearly in Hamor's life that greed will twist your heart and make you do sick and perverse things. We recognize the idol of wealth is sneaky. It's not like other sins. Right? If, if you go, take the, the sin of adultery for an example, you know that you are committing adultery. Like, you can't not know that that's what's taking place. You might justify it, you might think it's okay for this reason or for that, or you might not care, but you know what you're doing. Greed, on the other hand, is much harder to discern. How do I know precisely that I'm being greedy right now? You see, it's not clear, it's a different kind of thing. And so you say, Justin, do I have a greed problem? How would I know that? And I would just ask you, well, how generous are you in your time and in your money in investing in eternity? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 that your money tells you where your heart is. You want to know where your heart's at? Open up your bank account. Open up your calendar. Those two things will tell you. Does greed have my heart? Friends, learn from Hamor's foolishness. He had a chance to defend Dinah. He had a chance to discipline his son. But chasing his idols multiplied his pain. Dinah's abuse continued. He becomes complicit in her defilement. His son Shechem is emboldened in his sin. And his pain would be multiplied because his dad failed to discipline him. All the men of the city end up dying because they listen to this fool The women become widows. The children become orphans because they listen to this greedy fool. Friends, you must recognize that your sin is never private. It always impacts someone. And the impact is far more profound than you would ever predict. So whether it's chasing some extra cash like Hamor Or sexual sin like Shechem, your sin is always causing pain and destruction for others. So we need to ask ourselves are we pursuing the gift of wealth in Satan's wicked way? Do you go out and play the lottery? Are you engaged in sports betting, seeking to make a quick buck? Do you steal from your family? so that you can work more than you should to gain wealth that you don't need? Are you concerned with building your earthly kingdom but failing to invest generously in God's eternal kingdom? Don't be a stiff-necked fool who hears this message and thinks of somebody else. Repent. Stop seeking the gift of wealth in Satan's wicked way. Third, we come to Dinah and her brothers. Dinah's brothers pursue God's gift of justice in Satan's wicked way. The justice they desire is a good thing. The way they pursue it is a wicked thing, at least a wicked way. We pick up the story in verse 13. I invite you to look back at your copy of God's word. Here's what we read. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, catch that word deceitfully, they knew from the very beginning what they were up to, because he defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter, and we will be gone. Drop down to verse 25, and we'll continue. On the third day, when the men of the city were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi... Dinah's brothers took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, They captured and plundered. Notice the outset here. Their desire for justice is entirely appropriate. Injustice and abuse should always cause anger within you. But you must recognize there are righteous ways to pursue justice and there are unrighteous ways to pursue justice. Book of Romans, Paul would write, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. God says, these are my daughters, these are my sons, I will repay. Now, practically speaking, does that demand passivity? No, it doesn't. It might be wise for you to actively separate from a situation or a relationship. You can do that without seeking vengeance. You need to protect yourself. You need to protect your family. You need to protect your friends. You need to leave, perhaps, and get to a safe place. We have people here who will help you. If you say, I don't know who to call, with people who will help, I'd be glad to be there. You need to get counsel, though, You may need to call the police. It may be right to press charges. These are ways to seek justice within the God-ordained authorities that he's already set up. In fact, the the Brownsburg Police Department has a female officer who's dedicated to victim advocacy. I'd be glad to connect you with her and help pursue this path together. But these ways of pursuing justice is not at all what Simeon and Levi are doing. They're living in an entirely different universe. One whose moral corruption is so deep it's hard to comprehend. You must not miss this, that they perverse the sign of the covenant. The covenant sign from God is circumcision. It's a sign of God's love for his people. And they go and use the sign of the covenant to murder an entire city. It would be a little bit like, in in today's world, sending missionaries to a remote village. A violent village. And they get there. And the village talks about repenting and becoming Christians. They come to church. And they have a, a big baptism service. And the missionaries go, and they go to baptize them, and they drown these villagers one at a time until the entire village has been drowned. Sickly using what God has given as a sign of the covenant for their own anger and their own wickedness. say, Justin, that seems inconceivable to me. I can't fathom such a thing in the world, much less in my own heart. And I would just say, friend, no, it's very, very conceivable for you to hate someone that much. Don't forget 1 Corinthians 10. These things were written down as what happened, instruction for you, so that you would take heed lest in your arrogance you think you stand and you fall. So the wise person reads Genesis 34, and they ask themselves, who is it that I hate? Because Simeon and Levi hated these men and they became like the men that they hated. Notice this happens to you too. You become like the people you hate. So who is it that you hate? Do you hate religious hypocrites? Do you hate Republicans? Or maybe Democrats? Do you hate the LGBTQ community? Do you hate the woke mob? Do you hate old guys in MAGA hats? Or racists? Or illegal immigrants? Do you hate people more beautiful than you? Do you hate people who have the job that you wish you had and think you should have had? Understand this, that if you hate someone because of their agenda, you'll end up just like them and being governed and ruled by politics. If you hate somebody because they're beautiful, you'll end up just like them being obsessed by beauty. The people you hate, you become like. In Romans 12 I referenced a minute ago, out leaving vengeance to the Lord. In the very next verse, verse 20 of Romans chapter 12, we read, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I remember six, seven years ago, we were sitting in a deacon's meeting. A deacon stood up. It was one of the most holy moments in a deacon meeting I've ever lived through in my life. And one of the deacons said, Guys, I've become convicted of sin. I don't know if I've ever been convicted in a deacon meeting before, but I have tonight. I need to confess to you, brothers, what I've already confessed to the Lord, that I do not love the LGBTQ community like I should. And I want to confess that to you guys. I want to grow in godliness, I want to overcome evil with good. Doesn't mean I have to condone sin, but I'm not loving like I should. And he had a plan he'd built for how he was going to grow in God-honoring love. I wonder if you've become okay with some hatred in your heart. Simeon and Levi allow evil to overcome good. They pursue God's gift of justice in Satan's wicked way. And it multiplies the pain because they felt justified, but it caused death. And it multiplied the pain in the widows and the orphans. You pursue God's gift of justice in Satan's wicked way, and it will always intensify the pain. Fourth and finally, we come to Jacob, Dinah's father. Jacob pursues God's gift of comfort in Satan's wicked way. He's been mostly quiet up to the end of the chapter, but we see where his heart lies in verse 30. He kind of puts his cards on the table and you see what's going on in his heart. Pick it up there with me, please. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. He has a desire for safety for a good reputation, for comfort. These are not bad desires. It's a good desire. But each on their their own can become an idol. And they did for Jacob. And his response shows that. As it relates to Dinah, what do we hear from Jacob? Silence. On the wickedness of his sons, what do we hear? Silence. Silence. On concern for the women and the children who've just lost their husbands and fathers. Silence. We're left asking, Jacob, where are you? Almost harkens back to the garden where Adam was not leading, protecting, and defending his wife, and God saying, Adam, where are you? I called you to lead and protect, and you're abdicating responsibility. I've called you to be a protector. I've called you to be a defender. Step up. Fulfill your God-given role and lead. Men, you've got to lead. You've got to see the weak and protect them and defend them. You cannot idolize your comfort, feeling good and the things you want to pursue over what God has called you to do. Jacob started with a good desire to get his family to the land, to dwell in the land, to prosper in the land. He even bought land in Canaan in chapter 33. So where did he get sideways? Back in chapter 28, he had vowed to go to a place called Bethel. It's where God wanted him to go. But 20 plus years later, he's still buying land in Shechem, not in Bethel. And Shechem was an important city. It's a good place to buy land. It's a good place to prosper. It's a good place to do business and get wealthy. But it's not where he's supposed to be. He's doing what he wants to do instead of what God has called him to do. He goes there seeking comfort and ends up punting on his responsibility as a dad. His daughter, Dinah, in her late teens is there, and he's not looking out for her. This is what we call a sin of omission. You fail to do what you're supposed to do. Perhaps you think of James 4.17 to speak of sins of omission. It says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We usually think of sin in the terms of commission. I commit a sin. I go and do this wrong thing like Shechem or Hamor. Or Simeon and Levi, they're going out doing these wrong things. But sins of omission are significant to consider. We think that we're doing well by avoiding the big sins without considering the things we ought to be doing but are failing to do. And in Jacob, we get this picture of male passivity. He isn't looking out for his daughters, and he's not guiding the rage of his sons. He's passive. His sins lead to cowardice. Now, I'm not going to rock the boat. I don't want to stir the pot. I'm not going to confront bad behavior. I'm just going to keep the peace. And the sins of Jacob that lead to cowardice are usually harder to see than the sins of his sons. We might call them the zealots. It's easy to say to the zealots, Simeon and Levi, you lack self-control. You went too far. You spoke with the wrong tone. You're a bull in a china shop. You're speaking the truth, but not in love. Look, these are real sins, real errors. They need to be confronted. But it's easier to see those than the sins of the manipulative cowards who shrink back and don't take responsibility. And because they refuse to take action, they often put others in difficult situations. They look like peacemakers But often they're just people pleasers. And their sins usually precede the sins of the zealots. Because by failing to do what God has called them to do, they put somebody else in a bad spot. Men, think about yourself in this way. Is this you? Are you passive with your kids? Look, this applies to sons and to daughters. Do you protect your daughters? Do you pay attention to who they're hanging out with? Do you take them on daddy-daughter dates and treat them with honor? They should know the feelings of consistent affection and attention long before a teenage boy comes along. You can start this today. Schedule a, a monthly date with your daughter. Take her out to ice cream or donuts or coffee. It's about to be nice. Go on a walk on the B&O trail together. Hold her hand. Do something she'd enjoy. And applied to your sons, do you confront their sins? Or do you just pat them on the back after they score a lot of points in the game or score the way you want them to on the test? Do you model treating their mother with respect and dignity? Is praising her the norm in your home? Do your sons see you take her on dates? Do they see you giving her the time and the money to be out with the girls? Because if they see you treat her that way, that's the most powerful influence in them treating other young ladies that way. And if you failed in this area, you can change today. Maybe maybe lunch isn't even going to be very good today. You know that we forgot about it. And you can say, it's okay. I know you've worked hard this week and it'll be all right. We can eat peanut butter and jelly, and I'm so thankful for you. You don't have to be critical. But Jacob doesn't do this. And so the story ends, and we're left looking around saying, where are the men who will stand up for the innocent sufferers? Shechem is this sort of self-aggrandizing fool, and we wonder if his dad will step up. But no, he won't. He's just there looking to get wealthy off of him. So we wonder if Dinah's dad will stand up. But no, he's just concerned for his own comfort. We sort of see the brothers at least wanting justice, but they just rage on out of control. There appears to be no man of honor or dignity here. But we know that one would come one day. Not in this passage, no. Much later. But Jesus would come. And he would come and he would willingly lay down his life. He would become the innocent sufferer. And in a way, his life would speak uniquely to each of these characters. To devalued Dinah, he would say, I know that nobody saw you for yourself, but I see you and I value you. And I died for you. And I know what it's like, Dinah, to be spat upon. I know what it's like to be beaten. Come to me for rest and for protection. And to abusive Shechem, it's as if Jesus would say, intimate relationships aren't based on your sexual passions, but they're based on self-sacrifice Shechem. So repent of your lustful sin and come to me. I'll show you a Better romance or more joy than any romance can give you. I'll show you more satisfaction than any sex that can be there. To greedy Hamor, you say, Hamor, true wealth isn't found in vying for more for yourself, but in recognizing I had everything in heaven and I set it aside for you, so come to me and find true, lasting wealth. To passive Jacob, Say, Jacob, comfort's not found in seeking this temporal city. No, comfort is found in coming to me and my eternal city. In engaging in a work that actually lasts. To raging Simeon and to Levi. Say, guys, justice isn't found in being vigilantes. I came once and I'm going to come again to judge the living and the dead. So you get busy repenting of your sins and making disciples and leave the judgment to me. You see how he speaks to each person in the story. And to all of them, he says, there is a day coming where I will come back and I will wipe away every tear and death will be no more. And neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And the one who's seated on the throne, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. And in a dark passage like Genesis 34, we look ahead to the glorious day where he will make all things new. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you would send your Son to be like us and to understand our pain and our suffering and our weakness. That he would take all of our sin, every kind of sin, every shape of sin, every form of sin, and it would hold him to the cross. so that that sin could be put to death, so that one day he could make all things new, and in between, that free and full forgiveness would be offered to any who would place their trust in him. So we ask you to work in our lives, convict of sin, comfort the afflicted, break down the hard-hearted, and make us all cling to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name.